We are starting a new series called The Work of Christ. We're going to be studying the book of or the letter First John together. Um, maybe you have one of the scripture journals. If you don't have one, they're out in the lobby on the table there. You can grab one. Um, and uh, if you have a pew Bible, we're on page 591. If you have your own Bible, just start from the back and turn left. I know I just prayed, but I'm going to pray again. Father, as we come uh, or turn our attention to this text, God, would you open our hearts to hear what you're saying? And uh, Lord, give me grace to preach in Jesus' name. Amen. First John, we're going to read verse, uh, chapter 1, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 10. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is God's word. We live in an uncertain age. We're more uncertain of the news we get. Did it really happen that way? We're more uncertain about ourselves. We live in an age that is referred to as the information age but lies spread faster on social media than truth does. We live in an age where conspiracies abound. How can we trust what we've read or heard? We live in an age where both the right and the left, politically speaking, are more committed to their slant than they are oftentimes to the truth. I think a case in point that I wanted to that I thought about that wouldn't raise our blood pressure too much at this point in the sermon um, was uh, last year, you're thinking in the same week, two cable news companies, Fox and CNN, both fired uh, significant, you know, primetime hosts, pretty much under the auspices of their commitment to their slant is more than a commitment to truth. And then you had in the same year, 2023, the world's leader in news saying, 
the New York Times, we are independent reporting. And, you know, even that, we have to think about, well, what does that mean? And they were trying to claim, well, parole report, both sides. Um, the October 7th attacks in Israel, you know, there's been, who was real, who is truly responsible? Now, Gaza attacked Israel. Uh, and then you think of the war that is, that is ensuing. Who is really to blame? I mean, who has crossed the line? And certainly there's blame on both sides. There's the border crisis. Who's really at fault? What will happen? There's our economy. Is it strong or weak? I mean, we have jobs that are being created, but we also have inflation happening. And then there's its emotional impact of all of these things on your life and mine, the anger, the anxiety of it all. Can we be certain of anything anymore? Well, you can be certain of the work of Christ. That's what our text is telling us this morning. You can be certain. The world we live in may be full of uncertainties, full of contradictions, full of deceptions. Yet this is very clear. You can be certain of what Jesus has done and what he is doing for you even right now. The title of today's message is His Word of Life. And I got carried away. We have five points. <laughs> it's reliability. It's scope. It's threat. It's way. It's goal. We're talking about the word of life. It's reliability. It's scope. It's threat. It's way. It's goal. As Christians, we often look back, and we should, we should often do, we should do this daily, look back at the work of what Jesus has done. But sometimes we forget he is active right now. He's active in your life right now. He is in a posture of interceding for us right now. His present work is sanctifying us and drawing us nearer in relationship. And that's that's really the auspices of you know, my heart as we enter into this series on the work of Christ. And it is worth noting, um, you know, we've, over the past months, we've had a lot of different genre exposures within scripture. We looked at an Old Testament narrative and the, you know, Jacob uh, and Esau story. Uh, we've done gospel stuff. We looked at, uh, you know, Ecclesiastes. Um, John, as an, as an author, is a great author. I appreciate reading him. He's pretty easy to read in one sense. Um, like, you, read, you, you know, Pastor John, by the way, he does devotional reading in Greek. My devotional reading is in English. But I do study in Greek, and he's, I appreciate John as a writer. Okay, that's easy to read. Problem with John as a writer is he kind of goes like this. Okay, this first, we look here. Okay, subject and verb. Where is it, John? I know it's here somewhere. Um, so, um, it, so, that, so that's John. So my points will kind of follow that spiral a bit. Anyways, all right, maybe you'll see what I mean. Point one, the reliability. We, we were in this age of uncertainty. How can we be sure about the word of life, this word, the gospel message of who Jesus is, that he came, that he died, that he rose? How can we be sure? Well, John gives us here, the writer of this letter, there's two ways we can be sure. There's the chain of custody. It's unbroken. And there's the authority 
to tell about it. Chain of custody. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, again, my knowledge of law comes through primetime dramas. Um, and so when you look at, because they all get, you know, they solve the cases in, you know, 42 minutes or whatever, plus commercials. Um, chain of custody, you, you think about the forensics, they're going in, they find the evidence, they bag it, they seal it, they, they write their name on it. You know, when you go find a, a murder weapon or what have you, um, you don't just go throw it in your trunk with your dirty boots, right? You're not want, you, don't, you don't want to introduce particulates from other environments. You don't want to put a bunch of uh, fingerprints on there. You want to preserve its state from when you saw it. You document it with photos. You're doing the positioning of where it is, and then it goes into evidence, and it's kept away, and no one's supposed to touch that unless they have the authority to do so. And so why, why do you go through that? Well, it's because if there's going to be a trial and they're going to say, hey, we tested this evidence, there has to be certainty that it wasn't tampered with. John gives us, the Apostle John gives us a chain of custody that shows the authority of his message. Think about his words. He starts off in verse one, he says, in or from the beginning. What was from the beginning? It's, he's talking about Jesus by the way, from the beginning, with the Father, from the beginning. And then it says, which we have heard, we have seen, we have looked at, we've touched. And in verse two, it says, it was made manifest. He's talking about the incarnation. Now think about the words that he's using. We, we heard about it, we saw, we saw it, we touched it. It's this progression of certainty. There, there's this podcast, um, remember Reading Rainbow, and there was a guy on there, he's connected to this podcast, and they do, they do all these like sounds, and it'll be this mysterious sound, and then if you listen to it, you're trying to figure out what is that, right? Because hearing, you, you, you know it's there, but you can't always figure out what was that? Was that metal hitting the floor, or what was that? But then there's seeing. Seeing is more reliable than hearing. I remember one time I, we were in our apartment and on the street in front of us in New York City, um, there, was a, there was a hit and run. There was a parked car and somebody hit the car and then they left and Becca heard. And so then the police come and then they, they interview Becca and they're like, so did you see what happened? She's like, well, I heard what happened. They're like, oh, well, if you didn't see it, we can't take that, right? Because seeing is a higher level of certainty than hearing. But then there's touching. And, and for this, I recall, and I think about this powerful, this powerful experience of Thomas in John chapter 20, John's gospel. Thomas, one of the, the disciples, he missed out when Jesus had appeared to everybody else. He's the one guy he was left out. And he says, unless I see and touch his hands, his side, I will certainly not believe. And then lo and behold, Jesus shows up and says, here, Thomas, come and touch and believe. We've seen, or we heard, we've seen, we've touched. It's a progression of certainty. But in that, there's this chain of custody because Jesus was with the Father and he became manifest. He was revealed he, in the incarnation and I saw him and heard him and touched him. There's no break in the chain of custody of this revelation. 
do you see that chain of custody? But not only is there authority because there's this unbroken chain of custody, there is the authority of the words. John says, we testify to it and we proclaim. Those two words in and of themselves, they lend towards having authority. To testify is to be an eyewitness. To say, I was there and I saw that. It is not to say, I heard it from somebody secondhand or I read about it. No, I was there. Therefore, I have the authority to speak of what I've seen. And to, pro- to proclaim is a word that is lending itself to the authority of one who gave me the permission, in fact, the mandate to tell you about it. It's a word of authority. It's an authority of commission. And in fact, it is referencing the fact that Jesus himself commissioned John and the apostles to go out into the world and to proclaim this very message that he came. In fact, when you think about Jesus' commissioning, what inaugurates his words is his own phrase, all authority has been given to me, therefore you go. So there's, this message has reliability. Because of the chain of custody, because of the authority of it, and, and, and we think about we, we give authority away or we recognize authority pretty easily. We have a low threshold with, I can go on YouTube and okay, DIY. I've never seen this guy before or girl. And the threshold is, how do I know I can trust them? Well, because others have heard and seen and it popped up in my feed. But Jesus, who was with the father, was heard, seen, and touched and his message is proclaimed to you. So that's the, the reliability. Now let's think about the scope. And I wanna, I'll be brief on this point. How far in advance do you plan? I know there's a range of answers because I know the range of personalities here. Your career path, are you five years out? Are you thinking, you know, in 10 years? Are you thinking, I'm not sure what I'm doing for lunch today? Uh, well, you can come to lunch with us. Downstairs, okay? Check that off. The bo- check that box. I remember in high school, it was in summertime. Um, so, fine, you can judge me. That's fine. Um, I'm, you know, annually, my, my mom would buy clothes. And then in, in the summer, I would actually plan, I think, my first week what I was going to wear sometime in the summer of school. Like the, so, first week of school... Okay, it was two weeks. I planned the first two weeks of what I was going to wear every day sometime in the summer. That was in, I was in high school. I stopped doing that, okay, sometime. I don't do that anymore. Um, how far in advance do you plan? How far in advance had God planned? From eternity to eternity. And we see it here. It's actually five words, five, five statements here. Beginning, which means pre-existence, that which was from the beginning, the pre-existence of Christ, the, the Trinity before there was creation in their, ex, in their existence, in the Godhead. Then there is manifest, verses two and th- uh, two, twice in verse two, manifest, incarnation. So there's God's plan, his plan um, within the Godhead. Then there is that the plan manifested in that Jesus was incarnate. Then there is proclaim. We proclaim. 
It's God's, it was God's plan that Jesus would go back to the Father and that it would be left for the apostles to proclaim the message and it for, to spread throughout the whole world. Fourthly, fellowship. That is a word of the church being birthed so that you too may have fellowship with us, verse 3. And then there's joy. That joy being complete is what would happen when we, it's constant, it could, our joy will only be complete when we see him face to face in eternity. God's plan spans from eternity to eternity. But let's consider the threat to what John is proclaiming to us. The thing that could disrupt the very thing he wants us to enjoy, the eternal life of which he speaks, what is the threat? Well, in verse 5, John says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, first we need to understand what, just ponder for a moment, God is light. Not God has light. God is light. It is an attribute. There is never a moment where he is anything but light. There is no darkness in God. What does it mean for him to be light? What is light? Well, light has this sort of universal meaning even throughout other religions, but we would say certainly scripturally, intellectually, light means truth. God is all truth. But morally, it's purity. There's a moral purity of God, and there's an intellectual truth of God. Even expensive diamonds, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, have a minuscule imperfection. But God has no imperfection. There is no spot in God in which there is darkness. You think about, you think, so, so uh, with Josiah, I am for the first time watching the Star Wars. Okay. Um, you know, like the original ones. I know, I know. Um, so in the third one, which is really the sixth one, episode six, right? That's how that works. Um, we see Darth Vader is evil, but there's a little bit of good, right? But then there's Luke Skywalker who is good, but there's a little bit of evil. And which one is going to win out? In God, there is perfect purity. No darkness. There's, in God, light, for God to be light, it's unutterable, unutterable majesty. I, I, so maybe you watched the Super Bowl last week. And there's the halftime show. But then there's the like panning the crowd for all the famous people and all the musicians. You're like, there's a better halftime show sitting in the crowd. <laughs> I mean, Beyonce, uh, Lady Gaga, Jay-Z, and of course, Taylor Swift. <laughs> but even in all their collective majesty, it pales in comparison to God's unutterable majesty. We think about the moral perfection of our God. There's people in our lives we look up to, they're role models. I was really blessed to be a present 
for Marilla Majersik's funeral and to hear testimony after testimony of people who were impacted by her life in the restaurant and in other ways and to see how she was such a gem in how she lived and her heart for people. And there's so many others. There's others here in this room, others that we know, people that we could look up to and emulate. Yet all of us are flawed. God is morally perfect. And so it is the basis of that reality that John is describing this fellowship we could have with him. And he's saying the threats to that fellowship, the threats to eternal life are threefold. He says, you can't, you can't say you have fellowship, verse 6, with God who is light, morally perfect, unutterable majesty, intellectually true, morally pure, you can't have fellowship with him if you are walking in darkness. You lie and don't practice the truth. And what John is doing here, he's actually addressing there's some heresies that have been spreading in this church fellowship, and he's writing to address these heresies. And one of these heresies is that it doesn't matter how I live. You know, maybe the thought is, my soul's going to be saved, therefore what I do with my body does not matter. It doesn't matter. John says, no, it matters. How can you have fellowship with a holy God who is morally pure, intellectually true, and you live effectually a lie? That doesn't make sense. That cannot be. That's a threat. You can't have fellowship. But secondly, not only are those who are claiming how I live doesn't matter, verse 7 or verse 8, if we, say we do, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There are some who claim effectively, it would be effectively like those who claim, well, I'm a Christian, therefore Christians can't have sin, can't even have it. He says, you deceive yourself. There were those who said, well, I, sure, that's sin, but it doesn't matter. But then these are saying, well, there isn't even sin. And then thirdly, the last category, the third way of this, the third thread, if you will, in verse 10, if we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, you say, I've not done anything wrong. Yes, sure, maybe there could be something wrong, but I, I didn't do anything wrong, right? And it's that proclivity in us to sort of say, well, I wasn't complaining. I was just sharing my opinion, right? Or I wasn't fill in the blank. I was just doing this other thing. And it actually is the thing that we really rail against in our culture, that commitment to your way, the slant over and against the truth. John is saying, if you deny that you yourself sin, you're doing that. You're making, and it's worse because you're making God out to be a liar. Those are the threats. To claim that either if, if, if I, sin doesn't matter, I mean, it doesn't matter if I sin or I don't, I couldn't sin or I have never committed sin is to deny who God is and who you are. Those are the threats. But what is the way? See, we deal with the threats, but what is the way? What is the way we engage with this eternal life, with who Jesus is, what he brought for us? Well, John says that the way is the blood of Jesus. Verse 7. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. Now, you and I, we think about blood. I was playing play fighting with Solly 
this week, and then he, he had a, thing, a brace on his hand, and I caught the Velcro and the webbing of my finger, and then I started bleeding, right? You get blood on your, your clothes, you think of it as being soiled. But in the Old Testament, for things to be purified, it actually required the sprinkling of blood. When the, test, when the temp, tabernacle was established, they sprinkled blood on the objects to purify it. For the priest in their garment, they sprinkled blood on their clothes for purification so that they could fulfill their duties on behalf of the people. John's borrowing from that imagery to say, for you to enjoy true fellowship with the Father and, his, and the Son, the blood of Jesus has to be sprinkled on you. It's metaphorically speaking, not literally, of course, but that it's Jesus's blood that cleanses you. That is the way. It's Jesus's sacrifice that cleanses you from sin, that enables you, even in the face of your own sin, even in the face of admitting your own sin, that makes you clean. But then the way requires a response from us. It's contingent upon how we walk. We have to walk in the light. We have to in, respond to God's grace by saying, it does matter how I live. It does matter what I do with my body. It does matter my thoughts and my, my actions and my words. All of those things matter. We struggle, but we confess our sin. Now, two things that I think are counterintuitive here. How many of us enjoy confessing our sin? None of us do. Why is it hard to confess sin? Fear. Fear of judgment. Fear of exposure. Fear of rejection. John says, if you confess your sin to the Father, and there's appropriate times to confess it to one another, it says that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you. So the thing that we, act, the thing that we expect to happen, the opposite is true. We expect that confessing our sin makes us more distant with God. John says, you need to understand the heart of your Lord. His only desire in addressing your sin is to free you from it and to cleanse you of it. That is who you are confessing sin to. Do you see the work of Christ? The other irony here is it says that he is faithful and just to forgive us, verse 9. Think about justice for a moment. Uh, this week, one of the pieces of news that I feel that stuck with me, that it was mournful for me, it is a lot of pieces. But to hear the death of Alexei Navalny, the Russian uh, opposition leader in prison, uh, because it just smells of foul play, right? And to know here's a man who had a chance to walk away, but he came back to Russia. Then he was you know, falsely imprisoned, and then he was put in a very harsh prison in the Arctic in Russia, and on Friday was found dead. His mom and his lawyer went to go retrieve the body, and they were told they couldn't have it. You know, they were, it was being examined, but then lo and behold, it wasn't being examined, or 
Who knows? Justice would say who's responsible needs to be brought to justice, right? That's how we think about justice. That is justice. But notice how it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. It doesn't say he is faithful and just to condemn you, right? Because we would think, okay, you committed morally, you've broken the law, you need to be condemned. He is faithful and just to forgive. How is that possible? It is because when Jesus took your place on the cross, he satisfied justice for you. And therefore, when you confess your sins, true justice in that is to forgive you. The punishment's already been paid. It's, it's like the words of the, this, the great hymn, the 19th century hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Our last point here is the goal. What is the goal of John's message? You see, because he received from the Lord, he's proclaimed along with the apostles, but that proclamation is unto a purpose and point. What is the goal? Well, it's actually back in verse four. I I told you that John's thought kind of goes like this. I really think that the the sort of the main point, the thrust of what he's saying is, is, uh, is here in verses, actually, yeah, verses three and four. It's twofold, the goal here. Fellowship and joy. Fellowship and joy. Jesus the Son of God, for all of eternity, pre-incarnate, was in perfect fellowship with the Father, with the Holy Spirit, for all of eternity, perfect fellowship within the Trinity. Jesus considered equality with God not something he would grasp and came to earth in the form of a servant to have fellowship with us and to offer us through his atoning sacrifice, fellowship with him and the Father. That is eternal life. In Jesus' own prayer, the night before he goes to the cross in John chapter 17, he says, this is eternal life that they, speaking of you and me and all of other believers throughout time, would know the Father and Jesus Christ. The basis of fellowship is what the Trinity has already established, but that fellowship isn't just with God. It's not just an individualized us knowing God. John says in the so that clause in verse three, so that you too may have fellowship with us, the horizontal. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and the son vertical. Fellowship is this experience this mutual experience of all of us being rooted in Jesus Christ and in having fellowship with the Father and Son and therefore having a communion with one another. That is the goal, that we would be a loving community. But not only fellowship, it's joy. John says, as we we write these things, so that our joy may be complete. Now, even some of your translations may say your joy because there's a, Textual variant. Um, But really, when you think about it, it's all the same. Whether it's your joy or our joy. Here's what I mean. 
I think about what gives me joy as a pastor, as a dad, as a, as a husband. Uh, I have joy in my children to see not only them grow up, but to see them acknowledge the Lord, to see them respond to the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I have joy when Becca is the voice of encouragement in my life, to share with me the encouragement that I need when I'm discouraged or give me wisdom when I'm, when I'm lacking. I have joy on Baptism Sunday when I hear testimonies about how God has transformed in the lives, your lives. I have joy in seeing, you know, the birth of a newborn. I got to um, the, the ba- uh, Gary and Gabby's little baby, Leo. Is that right? No, feel, feel. Thank you. Feel. Okay. Yeah, but just to, to see a new life. Um, I, ha- I have joy in, in seeing when couples come together, getting to do Phil and Eddie, uh, Ellie's we- wedding and other weddings, in seeing the Lord transform um, the lives of people. I have joy in seeing God answer our prayers as we pray for the saints. You see, the Christian life is a life in which you experience joy because of what God is doing in other people. And that is the point of the message, that not only would you have John's message, have fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and with one another, but that in that fellowship, you would experience true joy. And that one day, our joy would be complete when we see him face to face. Where does this leave us? Well, briefly, our fellowship, your fellowship in church, it's not simply social. It's not just human camaraderie. There's something so much deeper you are invited into. It's not based on your ethnicity or nationality or the mother language that you have. It's based in something eternal. The fellowship of the Father, Son, and the Spirit into which you were invited and, uh, and with which we all share in common and therefore have a deep fellowship with one another. The goal of the message of Jesus is not simply that you would have good doctrine, that you would know your Bible or have moral compliance, but so that you could enjoy true fellowship and have the joy of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son and his perfect work for us on the cross and the continuation of the application of that work for us today. And thank you, Jesus, that when you went to heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, you didn't sit down simply to do nothing, but Though you rest from your work of redemption, you still are working in our lives to renew us, to sanctify us through the Holy Spirit. You intercede for us. And Lord, help us to not put your work simply as a past thing, but to remember that because of what was done in the past historically, you are able to work presently in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.